Taylor. And welcome to this week's episode of Square Mile of Murder. Woohoo. Um, yes. So today we're going on a journey. I should just read. I shouldn't try to ad lib. Just going to read. So um, murder, as you all probably know, if you're here listening, um, is one of the darkest taboos in our society. But uh, it's possibly the darkest when children are committing those murders. Um, And this week's case has haunted the British public for more than 50 years. Uh, From a tabloid sensation in the 1960s, this case has become part of academia, spanning the fields of criminology, sociology, psychology, and journalism, amongst others. Um, And just the name stirs up debates over nature versus nurture, child abuse, poverty, redemption, child incarceration, and many other topics. In 1968, the poor working-class neighbourhood of Scotswood in western Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England was rocked by the murders of two young boys, four-year-old Martin Brown in May and three-year-old Brian Howe in July. But that was nothing compared to the shock and horror that was felt throughout the region and beyond when it was revealed that the killer was their 11-year-old neighbour, Mary Bell. As with many poor city communities considered to be slum-like in the 1960s, Scotswood was going through significant changes. Uh, The worst of the so-called slums were being ripped down and replaced by a series of high-rise buildings in the hopes these new housing blocks would solve all the social problems in the area. And while nowadays we are all told as children to stay away from derelict buildings and building sites because they're dangerous, go figure, um, back in the 1960s in these communities, children played freely in these old abandoned houses that were waiting to be demolished. Uh, This was also a time, you know, where kids played out in the streets for hours unsupervised uh, or with the youngest children being supervised by their elder siblings or older children on the block. And even though this was a poor, quite rough area, uh, one where in the documentary we watched about this case, people who lived there in the 1960s say you had to keep your coal, like for the open fire inside, you had to keep that inside the house, otherwise it would be stolen. <laughs> Same with like your washing, you couldn't hang your washing outside. And it did have like higher than average crime levels. It was also at the same time quite a safe community, uh-huh. quite a safe place to live. So there's a lot of petty crime, but you can still, it was still the kind of place you could go out and leave your doors unlocked. And neighbours would keep an eye on your kids if they were playing out on the street. If they got into mischief, the neighbours would check them and then tell the parents about it too. You know, it was still very much like a very close community. Mm -hmm. And in the documentary, the Mary Mary Bell case, which we'll link in the show notes, Martin Brown's mother says that nobody had anything, but because, because of this... There's no competition or one-upmanship. Everyone just got on with it and looked looked after each other, looked out for each other. And it's in this mixture of close community spirit and crime and and social deprivation that four-year-old Martin Brown disappeared. On May 25th, 1968, uh, four-year-old Martin Brown was found in one of the derelict houses awaiting demolition. Uh, the street was known as Rat Alley 
How lovely. Put that on all, all your, all your postcards. Uh, (laughs) uh, And it was called this uh, because after being abandoned, the rats and vermin had sort of taken over the streets. Just, just a lovely mental image that I would like to scrub from my brain right now. Um, I mean, it, it it's not an unknown image, though. Any no, any sort of abandoned, derelict area, where especially where people have left stuff, yeah, things, yeah. But the see, I'm I'm imagining rats like actually moving in, like human-sized rats with suitcases and clothing. And they're moving in and taking over the neighborhood. That's what I'm picturing. It wasn't like that. Okay. Well, then that's acceptable. Um, uh, So once Martin was found, he was rushed to the local hospital, but was pronounced dead on arrival. Uh, But there was no obvious cause of death because Martin didn't have any sort of obvious injuries or bruises. Um. He was found upstairs in the derelict house and he had previously fallen down a set of stairs and became scared of walking downstairs by himself. Because of this, and in lieu of any other explanation for his death, some began to theorize that he had died of fright after becoming stuck upstairs in the abandoned house, which would suck. (laughs) Yep. And... I know it's kind of like almost like an urban legend kind of thing, dying of fright. It is actually a well-documented phenomenon. Oh, yeah, it's definitely possible. Also, I sympathize with him because in general, I am very afraid of going down escalators. And I have had many a time in my life where I've been like stuck at the top of an escalator being like, this is way too scary. (laughs) I'm not scared so much but i do sometimes hesitate to make sure i get my foot in right yeah on like the top step especially like if it's a stopped escalator in like a tra- uh, underground train station or something and then you have to walk down it it's just like mm, 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 mm. i hate them i hate it when they're stopped because i'm like what if it starts moving while i'm on it it's not like i've never thought of that so now i will thank you um <laughs> You're welcome. But it's like also that the steps are like bigger than normal stair, like taller. Uh, yeah. And so if I have to walk down a, a stopped escalator, it's like I just feel like I'm just going to topple like straight, like head over heels forward down the whole thing. And I just. Yeah. Not, 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 not a fan. Yeah. So people thought that maybe he, he got stuck up upstairs, died of fright. Um, however, Police later found an old pill bottle in the abandoned house, which had been left when the previous tenant moved out. And it was thought that maybe he had eaten the pills thinking that they were candy. Um, When the pathologist conducted the autopsy, they still couldn't find a cause of death for Martin, and his death was recorded as natural causes. Following Martin's death, there was a lot of protesting from the community about the houses on Rat Alley, uh, how easy it was for the children to get into them, get stuck. I mean, they were abandoned and fallen apart, but not cordoned off, as we mm. would expect derelict houses to be now. They were just kind of left. So following this protest, the houses were finally demolished at the end of July. So this is two months after Martin's death. And the streets were leveled. Everything was 
knocked down, ready to be replaced by these wonderful high-rise flats that are going to solve every social problem, which was the thinking in the 1960s. And, I mean, Newcastle, Glasgow is a primary example of that. It really is. All the slum clearances. And all those so-called slums are now being turned into tenement flats that are stupidly expensive. Yes, and now... I just love the way the world works. And now all the high-rises that they built are, like incredibly being knocked down again yeah being knocked down and and uh poor disenfranchised communities hey go figure yeah. so <laughs> but now that the Riley houses had been demolished uh the danger that that had led to martin's death was gone and there wasn't anything sinister for families to face so everyone expected life to just go on as it had before thinking that's not gonna happen <laughs> what gave you that idea um and you know as 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 we predicted just now the feeling didn't last long that feeling of safety in fact it only really lasted a few hours um because on july 31st just hours after the houses were demolished three-year-old brian howe's dead body was found in some wasteland in the scottswood area called the tin lizzie great name for a wasteland um initi- oh, we'll get to that later <laughs> initially the police <laughs> didn't link brian and martin's deaths because while a cause couldn't be established in martin's death it was pretty clear in brian's case that he had been murdered um brian's neck showed signs of bruising his hair had been hacked off with a pair of scissors that were found nearby um and Brian had also suffered genital mutilation and an M had been carved into his stomach. During the autopsy, the pathologist found that the M carved into his torso had actually been done in two stages. First, an N had been cut while he was dying or literally only just died. But that had then been changed to an M sometime after death. Mm. And awful as this is, remember it because it will become important later and the pathologist concluded that brian had died of manual strangulation but that it had actually been done gradually as in someone had slowly applied more and more pressure Mm -hmm. rather than literally trying to squeeze the life out of someone very quickly and this led the pathologist to believe that brian had actually been murdered by another child so following brian's murder police reopened Martin's case and they quickly reclassified Martin's death as a homicide. Police announced that the two cases were linked and that they were looking for another child um, as their suspect. Uh, Now, two names and faces kept popping up in the initial investigation, and those names were Mary Bell and Norma Bell, which no relation there. Um, Bell was just a common surname in the Northeast. <laughs> yeah, it's still a really common surname, especially sort of around um, sort of Tyne and Weir, obviously where this case takes place and down into Teesside. So um, I actually know a lot of Bells and they're <laughs> all from like the Teesside area. <laughs> so it is actually very common in the Northeast of England. So just a coincidence. <laughs> um yeah 
and although, you know, they weren't related to each other, 11-year-old Mary and 13-year-old Norma lived just a few uh, doors away from each other on their street and were known throughout the neighborhood to be troublemakers, particularly Mary, who was the sort of ringleader, uh, while Norma was much more of a the follower of the two. So Norma Bell was known to have some kind of learning disability. Uh, the documentary we watched on the case, uh, which, as I said before, we will link in the episode description, is very problematic <laughs> in that the press from the time described Norma as slow, stupid, pathetic, thick. That were the nice things they called her. <laughs> you know, in the documentary, um, they talk about, they describe people as looking like gypsies and they talk about, so obviously, poor areas poor working class areas prostitution and sex work was um, common very common it was a way for people to get by unfortunately and they talk about you know prostitute versus prostitutes versus decent members of the community um and it's all people from outside of these uh sort of working class communities that talk about those inside the community like this Mm-mm. um so Norma had some kind of learning difficulty, but because of the attitudes at the time, we don't know what that was. (laughs) But she was very easily influenced and led into different situations by other kids, mostly by Mary Bell, even though she was older than Mary and a lot of their other friends. Mm -hmm. And... Many of those interviewed in the documentary who lived in Scotswood in the 1960s and knew Mary and Norma said that if Mary told Norma to jump off the time bridge, she would do it, no questions asked. And for those who don't know, the time bridge is the very iconic bridge over the River Tyne that links the town of Gateshead on the south side of the river to the city of Newcastle on the north side of the River Tyne. Um, So yeah, it's a big bridge. If she told her to jump off it, she would go and do it. It's not, and not, not good. <laughs> yeah. And little else is really known about Norma, Be- Norma Bell. But Mary Bell, however, is a completely different story. Oh, boy. Um, so Mary Flora Bell was born uh, May 26, 1957, to uh, 17-year-old Betty McCricket in Scottswood, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. McCricket. I love it. Um, uh, Now, there's some question over uh, who was Mary's father. Um, He's believed to be Billy Bell, but (laughs) Betty and Billy didn't marry until after Mary was born. So many... (laughs) B's and M's and Mary's and Bell's and <laughs> Betty and Billy yeah, Bell married just... after Mary's born. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, it's, it wasn't it wasn't common, but it wasn't unknown for children to be born out of wedlock. Yeah. But that there is some question over whether Billy was her father or stepfather. Um. And Billy was known locally to neighbors and police as a drunk and petty criminal and was frequently missing 
from the house. Um, and Betty was known to be a sex worker who worked out of the family home uh, where Mary witnessed everything that went on between her mother and clients. And Betty also allowed her clients or, you know, if we're being more accurate here, charged them um, to sexually abuse her daughter from the age of four. And as if that wasn't enough, Betty was also known to leave the family home for weeks at a time. (laughs) Often travelling to Glasgow for three or four weeks at a time and with Billy also frequently absent from the family home, Mary was left to fend for herself a lot for a lot of her childhood. Jesus. And yeah. And I couldn't actually find out who took care of Mary when her parents were absent from the home. Uh, in the documentary we watched, there's some talk of her being babysat by one of the neighbours at times. Um but I'm guessing that at least I thought that possibly at least one of them was always around sort of even if they weren't really parenting mm-hmm. they were kind of in the general area <laughs> but we're not sure it mm. could have been other members of the community that might have looked after her who knows <laughs> not a good setup no not really <laughs> yeah one parent Whatever way it worked out <laughs> one parent just sort of in the same postcode but not really paying attention <laughs> potentially yeah. and one in i think she when she went to scotland she normally went to glasgow actually so one you know Hmm. 150 mile away yeah great (laughs) it's fine um so betty had bipolar disorder uh and was quite possibly quite possibly had some postnatal depression after mary was born um and she was only 17 when she had mary and she repeatedly tried to give Mary to her family members uh, to bring up, but her family always told her, no, she's your daughter, you raise her. Um, uh, Family members also strongly suspected that Betty had attempted to kill Mary at least twice. Um, On one occasion, Mary ended up in a local hospital after eating sleeping pills, mistaking them for candy. However, uh, multiple witnesses reported seeing Betty forcing Mary to eat the tablets. Yikes. Yeah. The second incident occurred when Mary, quote-unquote, fell out of a first-floor window at the family home. And correct me if I'm wrong, so in America, the first floor is the ground floor, isn't it? I was just going to say, so <laughs> if you're in America... So that's the, that's that's the, the second, second floor. floor. It's, like, it's the upstairs. Yeah, that's the that's a, a second-story window, which is like... 10 to 15 feet off the ground yeah um but many family members believe that betty had pushed mary out of the window Uh. either in an attempt to kill her or seriously injure her and to garner sympathy from the local community whether she was injured or died whether she died you know to garner this sympathy and possibly you know financial gain as well Jesus. you know um you know if mary was ill and Betty couldn't work, then people would give her money, in theory. And nobody, nobody is sure if it was this fall or the horrendous abuse she suffered at the hands of her mother and her mother's clients. But at some point in her early childhood, Mary suffered a very serious head injury, which actually led to brain damage. And the damage was to her prefront, prefrontal cortex. 
uh, which is an area of the brain associated with voluntary movements and decision making. So, safe to say, Mary suffered a pretty horrific childhood. Yeah, and uh, we know we know what happens with head injuries and and rough well, childhoods. We'll get to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Mary was known as a troublemaker among the families in the Scottswood area. Uh, she had a short temper and was known to attack other children, often beating them up, putting out cigarettes on their skin, and trying to strangle them. Lovely. Um, it has been reported that Mary would even attack other children in front of teachers, but they usually ignored her and she would eventually get bored and give up. How about helping the kids who were being attacked? You would think. Just an idea. I mean, some of the stuff that I read, it was actually the other kids who had to like step in and break up these fights and the teachers just didn't care. Jesus. So Mary has suffered this absolutely horrendous abuse pretty much all of her life at the hands of her mother Betty and Betty's clients. And she's now facing zero consequences for her own acts of abuse against children in the yeah. schoolyard. Plus, she has the head injury, which damaged the prefrontal cortex. I mean, this is pretty much the perfect storm for growing a dangerous psychopath. And with all this in mind, let's go back to the summer of 1968. Yeah. Um, so, in hindsight, many locals realized that for weeks before Martin Brown's death... Mary had been acting strangely. Always a good sign. <laughs> um, on May 11th, she had been playing with a three-year-old boy when he was badly injured in a fall from the top of an air raid shelter because 1950s. Um, yeah, they were still a thing. <laughs> uh, his parents thought it was an accident, though. Um, that same week, three mothers reported to police that Mary had attempted to choke their young daughters, and this resulted in a brief police interview and a lecture, but no charges were filed. Uh, Mary was also known to tell younger children that they had a sore throat and needed her to massage their necks to make them feel better, and then, instead of a massage, she would squeeze their necks until someone pulled her off the smaller kid. It's just a lot. Like, I just... Okay. In the documentary, a former classmate of Mary's called Pauline tells the story of how Mary had tried to strangle her and forced sand down her throat to Ugh. try and choke her. Uh, Pauline told her parents, who in turn reported Mary to the police, but because Pauline was so scared of what Mary would do if she found out that she told the police what happened she didn't actually tell them about the sand and just told them that mary tried to strangle her mm. which is completely understandable because mary has never suffered any consequences for attacks on the other children yeah and so why would it be any different this time so the police once again you know gave mary a bit of a lecture don't go strangling the other kids <laughs> on your way now and in the documentary, Pauline talks about how she has been racked with guilt all of her life because she believes that if she had told them the full story, something could have been, maybe something could have been done to, to 
discipline Mary and maybe Matt and Brian wouldn't have died. Mm. That's such a like terrible thing to carry around. It's 50 years. God. She's been carrying, well, more than 50 years, she's like been carrying that guilt. Yeah. And, you know, it, unfortunately, it, it seems like this, this girl was going to hurt somebody in some capacity at some point, no matter what anyone did. Mm. So it's also, it's not up to you, Pauline. Live your life. Um, so did you mean that to sound as patronizing as it? No, did? I didn't. It's just <laughs> my voice. <laughs> I was trying to be nice to Pauline, but I just sound like a douchebag. <laughs> um, so fast forward two weeks to May twenty fifth, and all the kids in the neighborhood uh, were playing out in the streets um, and around Rat Alley. That hopping hopping alley with all the king size rats um so it's believed that mary lured martin away from the rest of the children and into one of the derelict houses in rat alley as she took him upstairs and strangled him to death and mary then went back outside and found her friend norma and took her to the house to show her the body but two other boys from the neighborhood had already found the body of martin and a crowd was gathering outside the house and uh, side note, May 25th was the day before Mary's 11th birthday. So she was still 10 years old when she committed their first murder. Mm. And 10 years old is the age at which you are considered criminally responsible in the UK or legally held responsible for your actions. Is that still true? I believe so. Oh, wow. That seems really young. Yeah, but I mean, like for certain I things. Know. I mean, for like for some things, sure. But like, I don't know. It's interesting. I never thought about it like that. Um, I don't know. I just always we were told in school that's the age, and I've never really thought about it. <laughs> Man, they never told us what age we were legally responsible for our actions. Probably like oh, three. No, this was us being told in like in like citizenship lessons and year eight or year nine so we were oh. already like 13 14 <laughs> i was just imagining like 10 year old no, we went we <laughs> you went in the classroom 10th birthday like you are now responsible for everything you do listen up kid <laughs> if you don't shape up you're going straight to the slammer <laughs> <laughs> okay that's a little bit that's a little bit better <laughs> okay it's like damn i thought <laughs> you breaths are tough <laughs> um so martin's mother uh speaks in the documentary about how everybody looked out for everyone else's children which is why they didn't worry about their children playing out in the streets together because there was always someone nearby um even if they weren't under constant supervision and um martin was rushed to the local hospital and pronounced dead when he arrived um and his death was recorded as as natural causes Following Martin's death, Mary and Norma spoke to his mother quite frequently and asked her how she was, if she was missing a son, and June, Martin's mother, thought that they were just being kind and considerate girls. But they were being That was creepy. until the day before Martin's funeral. And one thing to point out is that back in the olden days, 
Before a funeral, sometimes a body was kept at the house after it being prepared by the mortician. Um, kind of similar to like a chapel of rest, but it would be in the family home. So with this in mind, the day before the funeral, Mary and Norma knocked on at the family home and asked his mother if they could see him. Mm. And his mother was quite confused because the girls knew that Martin had died. They'd talked, you know, she'd talked to them about yeah. it. And, you know, when she explained that, no, because Martin has died, Mary replied that she knew he was dead, but she wanted to see his body. No. Yeah. Oh. June slammed the door in the girl's face. Good for you, June. And broke down completely. So much so that her husband had to ring for the doctor to come and actually administer something to her just to calm her down. Jesus. Don't blame her. Yeah. Um. Ugh. Uh. So just days later, there was a break-in at a local nursery school, which... Is it a kindergarten or is it like daycare? Uh, no, so nursery is, is like you're older than... So daycare, if you think of daycare as being like babies up until they go to nursery. So nursery is about three years old. Oh. You don't go full time. Like I think you go like half days. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean like we have nursery schools in the u.s and like i went to nursery school slash daycare until i was four or five i started kindergarten when i was five so Mm. so it's all confusing it's a long time since i left primary school really (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so there was a break-in at this type of school this Young, young, young people's school. Um, and police found four handwritten notes taking credit for Martin's murder. One of them read, I murder so that I may come back. And another, I murder, watch out. Grim. Um, now, uh, because Martin's death had been ruled nat- uh, natural causes, uh, police thought it was just a sick prank. And for... Th- the nursery, it was just the latest in a series of break-ins. So um, they installed a new alarm system um, and with no, you know, sort of evidence, nothing else was done. Around this time, Mary had also written in one of her school books about Martin's death. And she drew a picture below the story of Martin's body being found by a workman and she also drew a bottle of pills next to the body. Hmm. And this is important because the police never released information about the tablets to the press or the general public. Uh. And you can see where we're going with this. So Mary clearly knew more about Martin's death than the other children in the neighbourhood. But unfortunately, teachers didn't see the story in her exercise book for more than two months. Jesus. Why aren't they checking their school books? I know. We had to hand ours in at the end of the day. Teachers should be checking. <laughs> probably especially if the uh the person whose book it is is like the known troublemaker in the class (laughs) or in the entire town yeah 
like two months. I mean, mm. although like maybe they just expected all all it was going to say was I I I hung out in Rat Alley with Norma and we kicked you know mm. empty cans around the the street. <laughs> yeah. Um. So over the next two months, the uh, as we said, the community campaigned for the houses in Rat Alley to be demolished. Um, and Mary and Norma were always at these protests. And on July 31st, they were at the front of the crowds who had gathered to watch the houses finally uh, be demolished. Um, it was in this crowd that she and Norma lured away three-year-old Brian Howe to the nearby uh, Tin Lizzy Wasteland. You know, there's always like loads of articles on like local news sites or BuzzFeed and things like that. And it's like 10, 10 things, you know, if you grew up in X, Y, or Z, <laughs> or, you know, you know, you know, you grew up in so-and-so if yeah. you remember this, this and this. Yeah. I found one for Scottswood, which we will include in the episode description. Yeah. And it's titled 14 things you only know if you grew up in Scottswood. And one of them is the Tin Lizzie. <laughs> so... So the first time I watched the documentary on YouTube, the Mary Bell case, like, so even though I actually lived up in Tyne and Weir, so I lived in Sunderland, which is not Newcastle. If you, if you go to Newcastle and tell them that it's the same as Sunderland, you need an ambulance. It is, <laughs> it's that kind of rivalry. Uh-huh. You, uh, you don't equate the two together. <laughs> so I lived in Sunderland, which is just south of Newcastle. And so I could actually re- like understand the accent really well. And at one point, I could differentiate between Sunderland and Newcastle, even though the accents are so similar. Yeah. Um, but I can't anymore because it's quite a while ago now. But despite this, I'm watching the documentary and I couldn't figure out what on earth they were saying. <laughs> it was like tin zzzzy, <laughs> which I think is partly the internet in our house is a bit slow at times. So I had to Google it and I was just like, okay. Scott's word, Newcastle, tin, and that article was like the top of the page. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, tin Lizzie. And it was, uh, from what I can find, it was known to be a safe area for kids to go and play in those days, maybe even today, because it was just a grassy area. Because mm-hmm. you know when you say wasteland, people often think of like a dangerous <laughs> area, whereas it can just be sort of unmaintained open space. And from what I understand, that's what it was. It was just like, a green space that had kind of been left yeah no one really did anything with it but it was fairly safe for the kids to go and play on yeah see i keep picturing like um like a big old empty lot where some sort of like factory had been uh, demolished years ago kind of thing so that area of newcastle actually part of the reason there was such sort of social and economic deprivation was because so Newcastle was known for its shipbuilding, um, as a lot of the northeast was, mm. and obviously that industry took a big downturn in the twentieth century. Yeah, um, a lot of the factories started to shut down. So that area had, you know, it'd been where a lot of ship workers, shipbuilders, um, or people who worked down on the docks lived in that area. There'd been a lot of factories, so there were sort of vacant lots like that, but. Tin Lizzie, from what I understand, wasn't one of them. <laughs> it was just a big plain field. Just big old grass. After murdering Brian and mutilating his body, 
The two girls return to the community where everyone is beginning to worry about Brian uh, having not returned from the demolition, uh, the demolition party, as it seems it was. <laughs> um, so a community search party was organized and the police were called. And Mary and Norma joined Brian's older sister um, who was searching the Tin Lizzie. And they actually walked past where they'd hidden Brian's body and pointed his sister away from the area, saying that he couldn't possibly be hiding around there. Jesus. That bit makes my skin crawl. That just knowing that they took his sister right next to the body and then were like, oh, no, no, it couldn't be here and threw away this. No, it's something very sinister about that. It is. And also, it gets more sinister when you think, oh, and it's a 10-year-old who's doing or an 11-year-old who's doing this. Yeah. It's even worse. Brian's body was eventually found, and this sent shockwaves through the community. Uh, but still, the general public didn't link Brian's murder with Martin's death two months earlier. And even's, even Martin's mother says that, yeah, she was sad. Obviously, a, a young boy from the community had been murdered. Everyone was devastated. Mm. But it never crossed her mind or anyone she talked to to link it with her own son's death. But police, however, very quickly re-examined Martin's case and drew links between the two. And within just a couple of days, they announced that the two cases were linked and that they were looking for a child suspect. Because, of course... Uh, Mary and Norma did little to hide their fascination with the case and whenever police were in the streets or gave any sort of like television interview or press conference Mary and Norma would always push their way to the front of the crowd uh, which thankfully didn't go unnoticed by police Um, and when police first attempted to interview Mary her father refused them entry to the family home and uh, threatened to set their alstation their dog? Alsatian. Alsatian. Yeah. Okay. German Shepherd. Oh, okay. They're, they're like a big, big dog. dog. <laughs> yeah. um, so he threatened the, the police with, with the dog. <laughs> um, but uh, police continued to investigate Mary and Norma. And uh, the story in Mary wrote, and the story Mary wrote in her school book with the drawing of Martin next to some pills was finally seen uh, by teachers who then turned it over to the police. Uh, police compared the handwriting in Mary's school book with that uh, in the notes that were left in the nursery uh, when it was broken into just after Martin's death. And so from this comparison, it's not an exact science. We know that. Um they believed that it was Mary and Norma who had murdered both boys and broken into the nursery. Mm. And unbeknownst to Mary and Norma, there had actually been a witness to them murdering Brian Howe. Oh. And it was another young boy from the local community who told his parents, and then they told the police what he had seen. Um, so Mary was eventually interviewed uh, multiple times by the police, and despite her sort of, you know, confidence and bluster, um, including uh, when she told the police to get her a solicitor so uh, he could sort of get her out of any any 
any of their, you know, accusations, charges. Um, she eventually incriminated herself, which I'm not super surprised by considering. <laughs> no, I mean, she's clearly very intelligent. Yeah. And worldly beyond her years, which is not surprising given the upbringing she had. Yeah. But I think at times she's she comes from, you know, what's said in interviews and documentaries since she was very overconfident and thought that she could manipulate her way out of anything. Anything. Doesn't which might work on the playground. <laughs> doesn't work in police station. Doesn't work on the cops. <laughs> No. Um, so in one of her interviews with the police, she told a story about seeing an eight-year-old boy from the area walking near the Tin Lizzie with Brian on the day of his murder, and that the older boy was carrying a pair of broken scissors. This uh, was what proved to be Mary's undoing, because as with virtually every single major criminal case, police do not tell the public everything. They always keep something back. And in the case of Martin, they hadn't told the public about the tablets found near the body. And with Brian, they hadn't revealed that a pair of broken scissors had been found nearby um, and that these had been used to mutilate his body. But when confronted with this, Mary simply turned on Norma and blamed her for the murders. Of course. Um, So the pair of them were eventually arrested on August 9th which is just nine days after Brian's murder. And on December 5th of the same year, they stood trial at Newcastle... Assizes? So Assizes <laughs> Assizes. Was a type of court that was eventually replaced in England with the Crown Court, which is the highest court a case could be tried in England. Okay. And it is, it's slightly different in Scotland, but Assizes were held periodically throughout the year. They weren't a permanent court operating every day like we think of like Crown or High Courts now. Um, it's just a little fact I found interesting when reading about it. <laughs> they also had periodic courts, which were the same thing, huh. pretty much, but for less serious cases. Um, not what I was expecting based on the spelling of the word, <laughs> which for <laughs> listeners is... A S S I Z E S <laughs> sounds like ass sizes. It sounds like some sort of like um, uh, mail order workout machine. You get your thigh master <laughs> and you get your ass sizes, and then you're you're good to go. <laughs> you get you get Suzanne Summers to advertise them, and you sell those ass sizes like hotcakes. <laughs> So uh, the case lasted 12 days, and in contrast to the coverage that would be seen um, in the James Bulger case 25 years later, uh, which is the case that's uh, most often compared to this one, there was very little press coverage, um, and a lot of sympathy uh, was given to Mary for her upbringing. So this is actually one of the things that I found really interesting about this case. Because when James Bulger was murdered in the early 1990s, I think it was 1992, mm-hmm. um, the press and the public went mad. Yeah. There were people com- 
campaigning for the death penalty to be brought back for his murderers, who were two 10-year-old boys. And, you know, it was such... There was just so much attention on this case. And while sort of locally in Newcastle, Mary's case was huge, it didn't have the same national coverage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody's calling for her to be hung. Nobody's, you know, calling for her to be locked up and rot for the rest of her life. There was a lot more, was a lot more sort of compassion and understanding, even in newspapers like The Sun. (laughs) (laughs) The Sun had compassion for her. Which, uh, oh gosh, let's... Just shows you how different it is. Yeah. Which, for... I mean, the, the sun is affectionately known in the north of England as the scum. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because of its coverage of the Hillsborough disaster. So... Yeah, I wonder if if maybe the whole, like, the, the very different um, public opinions on these two cases have to do with how widespread the media had become by the 90s like early oh. 90s especially oh, yeah. like like um tv news and stuff like that oh yeah definitely i think that that probably you know almost certainly had something to do with it it's interesting if yeah so in the months leading up to the trial both mary and norma um were seen by multiple psychologists and other experts and mary was diagnosed as a psychopath and um, some of these experts testified to that at the trial. Uh, on December 17th, 1968, Mary Bell was found guilty of the manslaughter of Martin Brown and Brian Howe and sentenced to be imprisoned at Her Majesty's pleasure. Um, trial judge Mr. Justice Cusack described Mary as dangerous and said there was a, quote, very grave risk to other children if she is not closely watched. Um, and Norma Bell was acquitted of all charges. But there was another problem. <laughs> Although Mary had been found guilty, nobody really had any idea what to do with her or where to send her. And because she'd been sentenced to, at Her Majesty's pleasure, that meant that a sentence was effectively open-ended. Um, and if you're sentenced uh, at Her, Ma- Her Majesty's pleasure, it is basically until... Like if you're in like a secure psychiatric unit or it'd be like the doctors and hospital staff if you're in a prison it'd be the prison staff until they feel that you have completed your sentence you are rehabilitated Mm -hmm. um so that meant she could serve a sentence um and be transferred into the prison system at 18 but that there was still seven years before that yeah that they had to figure out what to do with it. So instead, she was sent to an approved school. And I've seen in quite a few places, people describe it, oh, she was just sent to this like cushy boarding school. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not what an approved school is. Um, or was. They don't exist anymore. And we covered them very briefly at the beginning of the Peter Tobin episode. Yeah. Which is episode three. Three. I think. Yeah, three. It was an early one. Yeah. And an approved school is a type of secure unit. Um, it was kind of like the precursor to young offenders institutions or juvenile detention centres. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were known to be very tough and they were rife with abuse and awful conditions. So not a boarding school <laughs> by any means. 
not not sent away to a, a fancy private school, you know, in the mountains. No. <laughs> no, no. Um, so following the trial, Mary's case was frequently featured in the British tabloids, and her mother Betty sold photos and letters that she received from Mary. In one of these letters, Mary writes to her mother telling her to take responsibility for the murders so that she could be free and her mother could go to prison. I mean, good try. Uh, that that also just shows you how young she was. Yeah. That she believed that that's how it worked. Yeah, uh, just if be her that mother simple. was like, oh yeah, I am responsible for this horrific childhood. I'll, I'll do the time. She should go free. So... Yeah, and throughout her time in prison, Mary refused to take responsibility for the murders or show any kind of remorse and always defaulted to blaming others, usually her mother. Um, Betty remained in Newcastle but turned to alcohol and drugs to uh, cope with her life. She did, however, frequently visit Mary at the approved school uh, Red Bank in Lancashire, northwest England, which... uh, Mary remained at for six years until she was transferred into the prison system. In 1980, after serving 12 years in a number of different types of facilities for the manslaughter of Martin Brown and Brian Howe, 23-year-old Mary Bell was released, with authorities believing that she no longer posed a danger to the public, despite not taking responsibility or showing remorse for the murders. Mary was given a new identity and granted anonymity for the rest of her life. And it is because of this anonymity order that we know very little about her life after prison. Mm. And from what we can find or can't find, more to the point, (laughs) there is actually nothing out there about what became of Norma Bell, what she did with her life. Um, obviously, we know that she was acquitted of the charges of manslaughter and returned to the family home in Scotswood, but we don't know what happened after this. Mm. Um, so four years after she was released on uh, May 25th, 1984, exactly 16 years after she murdered four-year-old Martin Brown, Mary gave birth to a daughter. And initially, her daughter was granted anonymity until her 18th birthday. And Mary brought her up without telling her about her past and the murders of Martin and Brian. However, um, when her daughter was 14 years old, the press tracked down the family and sort of literally camped out in their front garden. And the family had to flee their house um, hidden under sheets. And Mary went to court and successfully argued for her daughter to also be granted lifelong anonymity. That anonymity has also now been extended to Mary's granddaughter. Oh. Who we have no idea when she was born or how old she is, but she does have a granddaughter mm-hmm. who has now also been granted anonymity. Um, in the 1990s, Mary was subject was the subject of two books by Gitta Sereni. Sereni? I'm not sure how to pronounce that name, and I'm sorry that I probably just butchered it. <laughs> Um, Both books were in-depth biographies based on interviews with Mary Bell, uh, her relatives, friends, and professionals who knew her during and after her time in prison. The second book was actually the first to deal to detail Bell's account of the sexual abuse at the hands of her mother, who was a sex worker, but what wasn't previously known was that she specialised as a dominatrix. Oh. Um... 
Now, the second book, uh, released in 1998, was also incredibly controversial because Mary was paid the sum of 50,000 pounds for her participation, which adjusted for inflation is more than 88,500 pounds today. Um, and now, the reason this was uh, so controversial and heavily criticized by both Tony Blair's government and the British press was because although Mary was receiving, although Mary wasn't receiving any of the profits from the book, she was essentially profiting from her crimes. Um, the UK government tried to find a legal precedent to prevent the book's publication on the basis that a criminal shouldn't be able to profit from their crimes. Uh, but this was unsuccessful and the book was ultimately published. And that is the case of Mary Bell. What do we think of this one? Oh, um, <laughs> that's a lot here. I, th it is. I, I, I think I find the sort of after prison of it all really interesting. Um, mm -hmm because she was diagnosed as a psychopath and yeah so which obviously you know is a diagnosis that that you know psychopathy or sociopathy or antisocial personality disorder like those are all diagnoses that uh, people can have and not also be murderers. Um, but just because of that diagnosis, I'm surprised that they let her out, like just by the nature of what we know about like um, prison systems and sort of uh, governmental opinion about that sort of thing. So yeah. And I mean, and as far as we know, she hasn't gone on to reoffend. So I just find that really interesting and like something must have helped or worked or clicked during her time in these various like incarceration places. Um, yeah. I think she's obviously received some kind of counseling and therapy. therapy yeah. So whatever, whatever it was, must have worked yeah because it's what's really interesting is that so because she's got a new identity if she committed a crime obviously the prison system somewhere in their files will have that this person was once was or is mary Bell. yeah so but they can you can be processed through the system under your new identity hmm. so you could then like commit a load of crimes and not it not actually be known that you are or you you know you are mary bell or you are one of uh, james bulger's killers mm -hmm. there's something about this case that i quite like in that the cops did a good job uh in in holding back the right details and picking up on you know things from her interrogations and um it's unfortunate that her drawing wasn't found for <laughs> two fucking months but yeah <laughs> but it seems like the investigative team you know did a good job putting all the pieces together okay half the script is the ending of the script has disappeared cool 
Well, we can ad lib it. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the case of Mary Bell. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Yeah. Come join us on social media. Square Mail of Murder, the podcast. Join the Facebook group and tell us what you think. Yeah. We want to know. And um are yeah. yeah have you are you familiar with the case uh you know first time hearing about it what do you think um would you buy an ass a sizer from uh, an infomercial this is going to be our this is going to be our new project post lockdown yeah 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 be uh, our new get rich quick scheme we're going to we're going to hire only the best uh late 80s celebrities to to really sell the hell out of this this product so see i was thinking like the pit crew from rupaul's drag race oh that'd be good too yeah you appeal to both men and yeah women. there you go it's perfect we need some women as well <laughs> to really cover the market yeah. but you know that's a good start okay. everyone everyone needs an ass sizer um <laughs> yeah so on that note i think we should probably <laughs> uh, so thanks for listening um, and uh yeah come say hi we will be back next week hopefully <sighs> the world hasn't ended and yeah, yeah. thank you for listening and bye 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 Okay.